Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. I was reminded this week of the life and ministry of John Calvin, one of the greatest reformers of the church, who who faced a great deal of uncertainty in his own day, and not least when he was banished from his pulpit, banished from the city in which he preached, and only able to return three years after the fact. And when he did, on that Sunday that he walked up to the pulpit once again, he, he turned in his Bible to the very next verse, from where he had left off three years before. Which I was reminded of this week as I asked myself, what are we to do? How are we to respond to all of the uncertainties of our day? To all the unknowns whirling about around us? I was reminded of Calvin, because honestly, I don't know that there's anything we can do that's more appropriate than turning to the very next verse. To, as an act of faith, continue to tune our ears to hear what God has to say today, because ultimately we're putting our trust in Him for tomorrow. The very next verse which for us is found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, as we continue on in this series on Jesus' upside-down kingdom, in which we've been learning what it looks like to live right-side-up in this upside-down world, whether that's with us and the insides of our lives, with with God and how we live before God, or or as we're going to learn today, what it looks like to live right-side-up with others. That's what Jesus turns to address here in Matthew chapter 7. And and let's begin by just reading it like we usually do from verse 1 through to verse 12. And you can follow along with me as I do. This is God's word. Jesus says this, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask as we try to cope with all that's going on in this 
world around us as we continue to look to you with regard to our place in it and the role we're to play as we continue to to love you and to love our neighbors. I pray with that that we'd not stop growing ourselves. Looking to you, not, not just for the answers to our most present needs, but for the answer to our most pressing need. Our need to be transformed and ever transformed into the image of your son, Jesus. In whose name we pray and ask even now that you'd work the truth of this passage deep down into our lives. Amen. Well, I know it's a, a little off topic, but... Along with John Calvin, I've been thinking this week uh, about the movie, The Princess Bride. And forgive me if you haven't seen it, I've been thinking of how someone would be hard to argue that The Princess Bride does not deserve recognition as one of the greatest movies ever made. Is that a controversial statement? If not for the critical acclaim it's received as a cult classic, then, then for the mere fact that it has got to be one of the most quotable and quoted movies of all time. Whether that's with Miracle Max saying that mostly dead is still slightly alive, or the bishop's mowage, mowage is what brings us together today, or with Wesley's standard reply to the requests of the, the beautiful buttercup, especially as he's rolling down the hill into the, the fire swamp, as you wish. It's one of the most quotable and quoted movies of all time. The most famous quote perhaps being when the Spaniard says, My name is Inigo Montoya. You kill my father. Prepare to die. Apologies for the, the bad accent, but, but, but it is what he says, right? the most famous line in the movie. A close second, though, is probably when he turns to Vizzini, who, who keeps on saying everything is inconceivable. You remember it? To which that same Spaniard replies, You keep on using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means which is a quote that has so many applications in life because of how often people prove by their use of words or phrases that they think something means what it doesn't actually mean. You keep on using that word, that phrase, that expression. I do not think it means what you think it means. Which could be said of at least three of the statements Jesus makes in this passage we're going to consider today. Three statements that don't really mean what many people think they mean, but that in fact together mean a whole lot more about how we're to relate to others in Jesus' upside-down kingdom, whether that's in quarantine or once we're out again in our community. Three statements, which we're going to look at today, beginning with the first one found in verse 1. When Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. Which apart from John 3.16 has got to be the most quoted verse of the Bible. The most quoted or misquoted 
as it's just as much the most misused and misunderstood verse as well. Judge not that you be not judged. It's sort of the mic drop of anyone about to, to walk headlong into unholiness, about to do what is so blatantly against God and the things of God. So much so that, that they've got to find some statement in God's own word to justify it, or at least something to get them off the hook. Well, Jesus' words will work. And I can just strip everybody of, of the ability to judge me at all, to critique what I'm doing, or to, to tell me what I ought to be doing instead. About to give up on my marriage? Judge not. Or go back to my addictions? Judge not. About to define my sexuality, how I like it, or my success and how I'm going to get it, according to my own whim. Judge not. Yeah, Jesus' words will work just fine. Except that that's not really what Jesus was saying. He wasn't condemning all judgment but rather a certain kind of judgment, as is evident from what he says next, when he, when he gives the, the reason we're not to judge in verse 2, when he says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This is a, a, isn't a condemnation of, of calling each other out or of holding each other accountable. It's a condemnation of casting each other aside, of casting on others an ultimate judgment that only God can cast. Jesus says, judge like that, and that's how you'll be judged yourself, presumably by God, the judge of all things. For with the measure you use, Jesus says, it will be measured to you. This was a common proverb in Jesus' day, taken from the marketplace. A measure being the weight you'd use to, to balance out the scale or the scoop that you'd use to measure out the goods. And the rule was that the same measure would be used in both the purchase and the sale. So that if you, if you brought your, your grain in and were going to trade it for some other commodity, whatever the exchange rate was, you would use the same measure, same weight, same scoop to ensure a fair transaction. But for some of us, that's a little terrifying when we think of how we pass judgment on others. When in close quarters, like many of us are, or or even just in everyday life. We're constantly condemning others in ways that would leave us condemned as well. The same measure? I know even today I wouldn't want to be measured by the measure I used to measure others. To hammer the point home, Jesus points this utterly absurd picture, to this utterly absurd picture, when he, he asked in verse 3, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? See, as in focus on what's wrong with them, when it's so obvious there's something wrong with you. Furthermore, Jesus says, How can you even, how can you even say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye? when there is the log in your own eye. Get away 
You're not capable of doing surgery. You've got your own problems. You've got a log, a beam blocking your vision, the faculty you need most to do the surgery. You're functionally blind, Jesus says, so, so that there's no way you can start messing around with others before you've dealt with yourself first. Which is why Jesus says then in verse 5, you hypocrite making like you have nothing wrong and making like you have what it takes to deal with what's wrong with everyone else. He says, he says, you hypocrite. That's not consistent. That's not measuring yourself with the measure you use for others. It's certainly not how you'd want to be measured out. First, Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye, out of your sister's eye or whoever else's eye, you're finally able to see. And chances are you'll, you'll have a whole lot better idea of what you're looking at, of what the problem is once you do, once you've been dealt with yourself. Because notice the issue is with the eye. It's not an issue with your foot. It's not an issue with your, your right lymph node. It's an issue with your eye. The one thing you need the most to help. And yet your eye is precisely where the problem is. Just like when Jesus was talking about possessions back in chapter six, it was an eye issue. So too here, it's an issue with perception and, and with misperception. It's a worldview issue, if you would that prevents you from helping anyone else out before you get help yourself. Which is clear if from nothing else than, than that you didn't notice the log stuck in your own socket. But once the log is out and you can, you, you can see, when you can see straight once more or maybe for the first time, chances are you're going to have a whole lot better idea what's wrong with others. And I imagine they wouldn't be so skeptical as when you walked up with that log sticking out. The irony, however, is that once the log is removed, rather than provide you with reason to condemn others for the sins and the shortcomings in their life, having been dealt with yourself, will dramatically alter the way you deal with them. Not condemning them, like so many would have in Jesus' day, for not living up to that outside-only sort of righteousness that all true hypocrites seem to love, but rather pointing out for others what you've come to know for yourself, that you and, and they alike need a righteousness of a different sort, a righteousness that starts way down deep, where, where, where none of us can reach on our own, and then works itself to the surface from the inside out. A kind of righteousness only God can bring about in a person's life. So that having experienced it, you hold out for them the same mercy and the same transformative grace that you've found and that you want to be judged under too. 
judgment that is ultimately found in Jesus. But if that's true, this statement doesn't mean what people think it means. Judge not isn't some, some escape clause from all of the condemnation or accountability whatsoever, but rather a call to, to those of us who try to play the judge, to you and me, to not judge others in a, in a way we wouldn't want to be judged ourselves by our own righteousness rather than the righteousness of Jesus and the righteousness only he can grow in us. That's not the only misused and misunderstood part of this passage. We've got to turn next to Jesus' statement found in verse 6. When he says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Why? Lest they trample them underfoot, he says, and turn to attack you. Which is often read apart from what Jesus has just said in verses 1 to 5. Is it, as if it's some sort of grant to withhold from others what we value most. What we consider holy, or, or better yet, what we consider to be our pearls. Which we could stretch that, right, to cover a whole lot of life. But even when read in relationship to verses 1 to 5, for many, Jesus' statement here in verse 6 seems to to lead to a conclusion that just doesn't seem to fit, at least not with what he says elsewhere, nor with the way he lived. Because most who've reflected on this verse in light of the verses that precede it have concluded that what Jesus is talking about here is the gospel. That's what they conclude, what is most holy, and a pearl of great price, the pearl of greatest price. That we're, though, interpreting it in that line, not then to give the gospel to dogs or throw that pearl before pigs, but rather to what? To protect it somehow from those who would trample upon it or Turn then to attack us for doing so. So that verse 6 becomes Jesus' way to balance what he said in verses 1 to 5 then. That on the one hand, we're we're not to, to judge others in a way that we don't want to be judged ourselves out from under the gospel, but but neither on the other hand would, would we be sharing that gospel with those who don't deserve it or with those who won't accept it, or may turn on us for doing so. Like the postal service loophole that says, yes, neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. Except if they see your dog out, and then they'll try again tomorrow. But is that what Jesus is saying? For us to share the gospel only with those who, that we think will accept it? And never if it puts ourselves in harm's way? If it is, it doesn't seem like Jesus took his own advice. After all, preaching about the kingdom is what landed him on the cross. And it doesn't seem like his closest followers took that advice after him. Maybe because 
Here, too, the statement doesn't mean what people think it means. Because Jesus isn't talking about the gospel. But I think about the implications of the gospel. About how someone should live who's been transformed by the gospel. Implications that that cannot just be thrown into the the pigsty or the doghouse with the hope that the pigs and the dogs are going to know what to do with them. Any more than a mom on quarantine should expect a three-year-old to know what to do with a pair of scissors. Those are for the development of their fine motor skills and not for giving themselves a haircut or for giving their mom a haircut when she falls asleep on the couch. Jesus isn't talking about thrusting gospel proclamations on people. He's talking about thrusting gospel expectations on those who still need the gospel. Gospel expectations, gospel implications, which which is really what verses 1 to 5 were all about as well. And Jesus is talking about sharing those implications with or pressing those implications on those who, unlike your brothers and sisters in the faith, have no reason to accept them. Those who, without the gospel, will most likely turn on you for sharing them and then try to bite you for it. For making like you have a right, or God has a right, to tell them what's right when they don't believe in your God to begin with. Don't throw those pearls before pigs, Jesus says, or or those holy things before dogs. Not because pigs and dogs aren't worthy of them, but more because they don't know what to do with them. And what... One, do what's right with them. After all, what's a pig going to do with a pearl? Except trample it underfoot. He's not going to string it around his neck and wear it for a necklace. And what's a dog going to do with what's holy? Unless the gospel has first had its way with them. So that they then can open up to all of its implications. Which means that this statement, like the one before it, doesn't mean what so many people think it means. Because it's not so much about withholding the gospel as about leading with it. And withholding for a later time the implications of the gospel. Leading with the gospel, especially with those who have not yet been transformed by it. The third statement we need to look at then is the one Jesus makes beginning in verse 7. When he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Which perhaps even more than verse 6 is, is read by most people apart from the context in which it appears. As this sort of blind, blind, the, the sort of blank check of the Christian faith. Ask, seek, knock. And you'll find what you're looking for, you'll get what you're going after, and be welcomed in to wherever you want. But is that really what Jesus is saying? Here too, it seems that Inigo Montoya knew what he was talking about, because I don't think it means what we think it means. And that's because 
This statement, too, must be read in the context of what Jesus has been saying. So that ask, seek, knock, it can't be some open invitation to expect God to fulfill our every whim, but rather an invitation to expect God to answer our every need, especially when it comes to living rightly before him. When it comes to this righteousness we're supposed to have, that, that Jesus said was supposed to surpass that of the religious leaders of his day, that, that we're to, to look for such righteousness from the hand of our Father in heaven, who's a good father and knows how to give good gifts better than any other father ever has. I'm a dad. I've tried to give good gifts. Sometimes I've intentionally given bad gifts. But God never has. And this is for his children's good. And he's got to do it. Why? Because he's the only one who can. The only one who can really deal with the logs that are lodged in our eyes. God's the only one who can deal with the lust in our hearts, the anger and the adultery, the, the lack of character and commitment. God's the only one who can turn us into the salt and light that we're meant to be and loosen our grip on this world and the things of this world so that we can grab hold of Him as we're meant to. God's the only one. And God's got to do it. So that living under the transformative grace he's made known to us in his son, Jesus Christ, we might then extend that grace to our brothers and sisters in the faith, along with all of its implications. Even as we continue to pray for and patiently endure those who would trample such grace, trample even us underfoot. Three statements that so many people use that do not seem to mean what they think they mean, but that together mean a whole lot more. And led Jesus to a final statement found in Matthew 7, verse 12. Perhaps the most famous of any when he says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Whether that's by holding grace out to those who don't know Jesus, or by holding grace out to those still getting to know Jesus, which is what Jesus himself has always held out to us. Isn't it? Just think of your own story. Grace when we were far off. Grace when he brought us near. Grace when we were wandering away. And grace when he brought us back. A grace that ultimately cost Jesus his life in fulfillment of the law and the prophets, so that by grace we might live like him. You know, many in history have affirmed the negative form of this so-called golden rule, not least the rabbis of Jesus' own day, saying things like, don't do anything to anyone that you wouldn't likewise want them to do to you. But history has proved time and again that this rule in its silver form, as it's called, cannot bend our bent world straight. 
It doesn't move humanity to heal the hurting or mankind to mend the wounded wood. It did not and could not and could never have until Jesus came and turned that rule on its head. Until he came and did for us what we didn't deserve. So that we might spend our lives doing the same for others. Let me ask you then, even this week, from the confines of your home, starting with the outsider, what can you do for one individual, for one family, maybe your neighbor who lives next door, maybe someone down the street, maybe someone if you're still going into work who you're going to run into tomorrow? What can you do for one individual, one family who does not know Jesus yet? To show them the selfless love of our Savior. Not to hold over them the standard to which he calls his followers. But what can you do to show them the the selfless love of our Savior? Drop off a 24-pack of toilet paper? Leave them a note with a $100 bill in it? Just to tell them that you're thinking about them and that they're not alone in these hard times. Or maybe running errands for them if they can't. And then taking the opportunity to share your story. Maybe of how, how much Jesus means in times like these. Not expecting to someday be repaid. Not because they're going to do to you as you've done to them. But because it's a reflection of what God has already done for you. It's a fulfillment of what God's done in the law and the prophets and what he's fulfilled in Jesus. Again, what can you do for the outsider? And then what can you do for an insider? Maybe it's your family who you're getting to know all too well again. Maybe it's, it's them that you're going to be cooped up next to for the next who knows how long. Or maybe it's a brother and sister in the faith that... that You need to call up and say, meet me in the aisle at the grocery store. i got something to give you. What can you do to show grace for one who's already known it in part? Oh Lord, we all know we need it more. What can you do to walk alongside the struggler, the straggler, to come alongside the one who's not quite doing so well in their walk? Or maybe needs to just hear that They're doing okay. To lift someone up rather than tear them down. To humbly come as one who's been dealt with yourself. To then lend a helping hand as they come to Jesus to be dealt with too. And maybe lead that in that with your own story as well of experiencing grace yourself. Because... It's my prayer. It is our elders' prayer. I hope it's our prayer as a body that those day, these days would not be lost on the mindless monotony or, or lack of routine, but would be, would be spent serving the Savior we so love and serving others in his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray it would be so even in these uncertain days, that we would be those who 
not only refrain from doing what we wouldn't want done to us, but would go so far in the steps of our Savior to be those who give of ourselves on behalf of others. Because he did it first for us. And we pray it in his name that it would be so. Amen. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible.org.